Hello, good evening and welcome to the German Historical Institute. My name is Andreas Gestrich, I'm the director of the Institute. It's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Professor Yvette Weiss, uh, our speaker this evening. And uh, this is the third uh, lecture in our series on the politics of land, archaeology, architecture and city planning in Israel which is a joint lecture in good tradition uh, of the Leo, European Leo Beck Institute and the German Historical Institute, London. And um, for the first time, we took it into the, over the winter period. So you had two lectures last year, and uh, this is now the last but one in the series. And I hope we can all welcome you uh, again on, oh, now. <laughs> soon, um, uh, on the 14th of April, uh, when Dr. Wendy Pullen uh, is going to talk on In the Shadow of the Wall, Icon and Identity in Jerusalem's Separation Barrier. Uh, it's a complicated topic. We have seen that in the course of these uh, lectures. And I think uh, this evening will be another insight into really how complicated uh, the situation is and how important the land question in general uh, is in, in, in Israel. So, in good tradition, we do the introduction together. Uh, I hand over to Daniel Wildmann, who will introduce our speaker this evening, and uh, then it will be followed by discussion and afterwards by a reception and I would like to invite you all to stay for a glass of wine and continue the discussion afterwards uh, next doors. So, but then over to you, Daniel. Thank you, Andreas. I'm also very happy to welcome you to third um, um, lecture of this season's European Leobeck Institute lecture. The series is, as Andreas pointed out, organized jointly by us, the Leo Beck Institute London and the German Historical Institute. My name is Daniel Wildmann, I'm the director of the Leo Beck Institute and my thanks go out, as always, my very warm thanks to Andreas Gestrich, the director of the German Historical Institute, um, for hosting the series and for being a really brilliant partner in our endeavors. I'm also very happy to introduce tonight's guest speaker, my dear friend and colleague, Professor Ifat Weiss. Ifat has been the director of the Butzerius Institute for Research of Contemporary German History and Society at Haifa University from 2000-2007. And since 2007, she's a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and also the director of the Rosenzweig Minerva Research Center. She has also been a visiting scholar at Vienna, Leipzig, Hamburg, New York, Berlin and Stanford, just to name a few of all these very many universities. Her fields of interest are modern and contemporary German Jewish history, the time of the mandate in Palestine, very important Arab-Jewish relation Israel, and maybe here comes everything together, ethnicity, citizenship, and minority rights. She has published widely, really, really widely in all these fields, and she has also directed 
as a principal investigator, as we call this in the UK, a lot of very important research projects together with German, and this is very important also together with Palestinian colleagues and academics. Very rare in Israel, unfortunately. Let me mention now some of Ifart's um, publication. I will confine myself to her books only, I'm not going into your articles, they're just too many. And um, let me start with one. Staatsbürgerschaft und Ethnizität. Deutsche und polnische Juden am Vorabend des Holocaust und Englisch. Ethnicity and Citizenship. German and Polish Jews between 1933 and 1940. Published in Hebrew, but also in German in the year um, 2000. Or another book, very, very important book. And Haifa's Lost Heritage, published firstly in Hebrew in 2007, then in English with Columbia University Press 2011, and finally also in German 2012. And Ifart was awarded the Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought 2012 for this extremely important book. Or another example, Lea Goldberg. Lehrjahr in Deutschland, 1930 to 1933, uh, or in English, Journey and the Imagined Journeys, Lea uh, Goldberg in Germany, 1930 to 1933. And very interestingly, this book has been published first in German, 2010, and only then in Hebrew, 2014. So we have another way of cultural transfer here than usual. And finally, I would like also to mention at least one of the books Ifart has edited. The book is called Haifa Before and After 1948, a collection of essays edited together with Mahmoud Yatsbak and published 2012, but in English only. She is currently undertaking a very new research project also a very big one, in cooperation with the Literaturarchiv in, in Marbach, the German literature archive, the big German literature archive in Marbach, and the University of Bonn, um, on the topic of preserving and exploring German-Jewish collections in, and that's an interesting point, Israeli archives. Or in other words, it's a, it, 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 it's a research undertaking on cultural property <laughs> and the transfer of culture from one geographical and cultural sphere into another. But tonight, Eva Weiss is going to speak about political sovereignty and cultural property, the Mount Scopus and, and Clave in Jerusalem. Please, Eva. Thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be here. I would like to thank both of you and both institutions for hosting me here. And as you first, as we first talked about it, actually you asked me to speak about my Haifa book, mm -hmm. and uh, which would fit, I guess, uh, which would uh, fit, of course, in uh, for in this topic. However, I prefer to speak about Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which is work in progress. Uh, because I think that it's easier to speak about something which is work in progress. It's much more, uh, I 
something stimulating. And because I'm also looking for a discussion, I think it's still worth to hear something also and to learn something. So thank you so very much. Jerusalem was intended to be an international city. This was the recommendation of the UNSCOP, the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine, appointed in May 1947 in the wake of the British government's decision three months previously to return its mandate to the United Nations, the organization that had succeeded the League of Nations. The committee member unanimously recommended that the mandate be terminated as soon as possible, but remained divided over fundamental issues. While three of its members, the representatives of India, Iran, and Yugoslavia, favored a federal binational state, a majority of eight determined that two states, one Arab and the other Jewish, should be founded on the territory of the mandate, while Jerusalem should become a neutral, demilitarized and international city controlled by the United Nations. This solution, explained the committee members in justifying the plan, would take into consideration Jerusalem's singular status and in particular its sanctity in the eyes of adherence to the three religions, namely Jews, Christians and Muslims. This blueprint drawn up by the committee was with minor amend amendments, approved by the UN General Assembly on November 29, 1947, as Resolution 181-2, better known as the Partition Plan. In this period, the Assembly determined that, and I quote, the city of Jerusalem shall be established as a corpus separatum under a special international regime and shall be administrated by the United Nations, end of quotation. On the recommendation of the committee, the UN was not content to inter internationalize the holy places, namely to make due with a functional internationalization and chose the maximalist formula of internationalization of the city and its surroundings. While the Arab states rejected the partition plan, on the grounds that it would rob them of Arab assets, which would be handed over to the Jewish state, the Zionist movement chose to accept it. 100,000 Jews were living in Jerusalem on the eve of the partition resolution. With the outbreak of hostilities, they became entirely dependent on a single transport route that connected them to the Jewish settlement in the coastal plain. This artery, which won through mountains territory densely populated by Arabs, now became an Achilles heel. For many weeks, the Arab force repeatedly blocked it, cutting off supplies to Jerusalem and thereby creating serious shortages. Operated independently without British assistance, the Haganah, the Jewish society's major military force, sought to break the blockade and between December 1947 and the end of March 1948, dispatched 224 supply convoys to Jerusalem, 216 of which reached their destination. While this insistence on taking independent action, despite the heavy casualties it entailed, surprised the British, it made good sense. 
it was one of many such steps that Israel would take to establish its sovereignty over a territory that had keys to be an imperial space. Alongside the general blockade of Jewish Jerusalem, there were two disconnected Jewish centers located in the midst of a dense Arab environment. These were the Jewish quarter in the old city and the Hebrew University and Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus. Most of the residents of the Jewish quarter in the heart of Jerusalem's old city were Orthodox Jews. Between the time of the UN declaration and the outbreak of hostilities, they remained under the protection of the Haganah and its commander, David Shaltiel, who hailed from the Portuguese Jewish community in Hamburg, and were ordered not to abandon the quarter. The Hebrew University and Hadassah Hospital in the north of the city were likewise encircled. Surrounded on all sides by Arab neighborhoods and villages, these two institutions depended on a single transportation <coughs> axis that passed through the Arab neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Because of the constant attacks, all traffic to and from Mount Scopus was conducted through armored convoys. The Haganah's attempt to take control of the route were foiled by the British, since they intended to withdraw their forces along, along it when the mandate came to an end. The circle of violence and counter-violence reached a peak close to the date on which the mandate was to be wound up. On April 13, 1948, a few days after the massacre inflicted by Etzel and Lehi forces, underground movements that rejected the Haganah's authority on the residents of the village of Dir Yassin, Arab forces attacked a convoy headed for Mount Scopus in Sheikh Jarrah, while the British stood by as the Jewish forces failed in their attempts to come to its rescue. In this event, known as the Mount Scopus convoy, 78 of the travelers were killed, among them the director of Hadassah Hospital, doctors, nurses, and professors and students of the Hebrew University. Following this event, the Hebrew University, in effect, keys to function. Shortly thereafter, when the Arab Legion, a force nurtured by and allied to Britain, entered the fray once the British had withdrawn in mid-May 1948, the fate of both institutions was sealed. While the UN's overall plan to internationalize Jerusalem failed to materialize, Mount Scopus along with a few strips of no man's land remained the only enclave within the city controlled by the UN as a demilitarized zone. As such, it was similar to the approximately 200 enclaves formed at the time of the Indian-Pakistan division in the wake of the exit of the British in 1947 as part of the process of decolonization and which are nowadays located in India and in Bangladesh following its gaining of independence from Pakistan in 1971. Yet, unlike these enclaves, which are thinly populated 
and more importantly, are located in a region that fails to attract international attention, the Mount Scopus enclave was situated in Jerusalem. Scholarship perhaps tends to treat enclaves as a negligible phenomenon and to ignore them, but such an approach does not apply to the case in hand. Even the slightest rustle throughout the 19 years of the Mount Scopus enclave's existence was registered by the various international organizations, be they humanitarian or political, and was simultaneously picked up by the diplomatic envoys to the region, who were constantly alert to the slightest infringement of the status quo, lest it undermine the stability of the region and consequently also of the world. The Mount Scopus enclave was a mere two kilometers long and one kilometer wide on average. This territory was hastily demarcated as part of the armistic agreement concluded between Israel, Jordan, and the UN on July 7, 1948, during the first truce of the war. When these agreements all but collapsed with the renewal of fighting, and in view of the difficulty of transporting supplies to the Jewish demilitarized zone, an appendix to the agreement was approved on November 30, 1948. This haste, alongside other circumstances, and in particular the continuation of the conflict, led to conflicting interpretations of the agreement and its components. The two parties, for example, failed to reach agreement on the contours of the enclaves because they worked with different maps. They likewise disagreed over the status of the Arab village of Isawiya. It was evacuated during the hostilities, but most unusually and exceptionally, for the period, its residents were allowed to return to their homes. While the Israelis believed that Isawiya was located in the Israeli demilitarized zone, the Jordanian understood that under the terms of the agreement, Isawiya had been granted an independent status under the auspices of the United Nations. The issue of the number of residents permitted to live in the village remained a bone of contention as well. The Israelis insisted that the agreed number was 150 individuals, while the Jordanians believed that the agreement provided for 150 men and their families, and in all approximately 1,000 people, which was more or less the size of the village's population on the eve of the war. This and many other contendent issues were, under the armistic agreement, to be addressed by a special Jordanian-Israeli committee. According to paragraph eight of the armistic agreement, the committee was to discuss every topic raised by one of the parties on which agreement in principle had been previously reached, such as, and I quote, resumption of the ongoing functioning of the cultural and humanitarian institutions on Mount Scopus and free access to them, end of quotation. Yet, although the special committee did indeed reconvene, 
he did not even begin to discuss the issue of the resumption of regular activity on the part of Hadassah Hospital and the Hebrew University, and they, in fact, keys to operate altogether. When he attempted to read the annals of the Hebrew University during the 1948 war as a predetermined scenario of devastation and redemption, from the time of the earliest initiatives to founding of the university on Mount Scopus, from the time of the earliest initiatives, the founding of the university on Mount Scopus was charged with theology and politics as encapsulated in Isaiah's prophecy, that wisdom shall come forth from Zion and the word of the Lord <coughs> shall be heard from Jerusalem. From the moment in 1913 that the Zionist movement began to take steps to realize the vision of establishing the university, the prevalent terminology revealed the threat inherent in translating an abstract religious passage into a practical program. A third temple, as Chaim Weizmann, appointed by the 11th Zionist Congress to oversee the project, termed it in a letter to his wife, Vera. While the initial purchase of land from the pious English Christian advocate, John Gray Hill, during the course of World War I and the finalization of the transaction in 1920, may have been a chance outcome of supply and demand in the local real estate market, the site itself was from the outset imbued with holy symbolism. Indeed, from Mount Scopus' lofty topographical location, one could observe major biblical landmarks in the history of the Jewish nation. Moreover, in the spring of the year 70 AD, Two of Emperor Titus' legends were stationed on the mound from which the Roman commanders watched the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the massacre and eventual enslavement and exiling of the Jews. Above all, the site that looked down on the Wailing Wall marked the loss of Jewish sovereignty. It was from this hill that the Roman destroyer of Jerusalem conducted the siege which brought to an end that great chapter of the Jewish people. Could there be a more historic spot? Asked with some pathos, Lord Arthur James Balfour, former British Foreign Secretary and author of the famous declaration at the cornstore laying ceremony of the university in April 1925, as he alluded to the link between the loss of sovereignty at the end of the Second Temple period and the hope of revival with the founding of the Hebrew University. The weight of religious and messianic hearing loaded onto this secularized cultural enterprise was tremendous, even if those who undertook the task were not necessarily aware of it. In 1919, Chaim Weizmann invited the renowned Scottish town planner, Patrick Geddes, who was at the time designing the university at Indore in India to design the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. By creating a link to the Muslim structures in Jerusalem's old city and its environs, Geddes Orientalist design for the Mount Scopus campus sought to counterbalance the bell tower of the Russian Church of the Ascension on the Mount of Olives 
and the tower of the Augusta Victoria Hospice. A dome was to adorn the roof of the central hall to be located at the heart of the campus, clearly linked to the Jewish symbol of the Star of David and setting it against the dome of the rock, its base was designed as a hexagon rather than an octagon. This light divergence did not conceal the fact that Gede's dome imitated and vied with the dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Altogether, Gede's design, and in particular the central hall, was not realized, excuse me, although Gede's design, and in particular the central hall, was not realized, the theological inspiration persisted. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, thus this Yehuda Magnus, the first president of the Hebrew University, quote the prophet Zachariah at the inauguration of the Institute of Jewish Studies in 1924, thereby expressing the essence of the university as a crowning glory of spiritual Zionism, which sought to found a spiritual center as a substitute for the state. This distinction, complex and fraught with contradictions during the period of the British mandate, was effectively rendered redundant with the realization of Jewish sovereignty in Palestine. If, at the time of its founding, at an elevation of 810 meters above sea level, the university was characterized by an ancient majesty and the panorama of the holy sites that lay beneath it, a quarter century later, its topographical location turned into a clear strategic advantage. Spirit on the one hand, and might and power on the other hand, now confronted each other as competing alternatives. Why not, thought to himself, Alexander Knox Helm, British charged their affairs at the embassy in Tel Aviv, simply shift the university. In early 1950, Helm proposed this amateur idea of relocating the university buildings just as wealthy Americans had in the past moved several structures from England to the United States to Reuven Shiloach, Ben Gurion's appointee in charge of special services. Would such a removal of the hospital and university to Israel be completely out of question? He asked apologetically, adding that this was his own idea, probably a stupid one and entirely unpractical, end of quotation. Around the same time, Ham's colleague, Hugh Dove, British Consul General in Jerusalem, independently broached the possibility of relocating the buildings of the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus to the Israeli side of Jerusalem with Werner Senato, the university's administrative director, who rejected the idea on, sentiment, on sentimental grounds. Dov believed that, and I quote, sentiment is no doubt strong, but it is mainly fostered by the Israeli military authorities and it is their consent, rather than that of the academic body, that we'll have to gain before the claim for sovereignty of Amanskopus is given up." End of quotation. 
the consul was not mistaken. Differences in the considerations and desires of people on the university staff and those of the politicians began to emerge. In late March 1949, Senato complained to the Director General of Israel's Foreign Ministry, Dr. Walter Eitan, that the university's position had been ignored during the negotiations on an armistice between Israel and Jordan held on the island of Rhodos. Israel's foreign ministry agreed to allow Senato to travel to the United States to promote his views and those of the universities, which amounted primarily to the implementing of Clause 8 of the Armistic Agreement concerning resumption of the ongoing functioning of the cultural and humanitarian institutions on Mount Scopus and free access to them, but in effect remained cool toward his initiatives and set its eyes on other objectives. The issue of the destiny of the university on Mount Scopus was now subordinated to Israel's fundamental standpoint on the future of Jerusalem. In late 1949, it was still possible to retrieve specific items from the Mount Scopus enclave through personal initiatives on a particular matter. Magnus Widow approached the UN commander in Jerusalem through the mediation of Norman Bentwich, professor of international law and former legal advisor to the British mandate government in Palestine, requesting the personal papers of her late husband, the former president of the Hebrew University, who had died the previous year while on a visit to the United States. There, acting on his own initiatives and in face of growing criticism on the part of his colleagues, Magnus had summoned all his remaining strengths to undertake a mission to lobby against the approval of the partition plan at the UN. Perhaps it was by virtue of Magnus' status and his special relations with the Arab camp that Jordanians accept, acceded to the UN's request and allowed Magnus, private secretary, the director of the archive, and Benfitch to spend some three hours in the enclave and to remove the documents by means of the secured convoy. <coughs> American initiative facilitated another visit and the salvaging of a further collection. This comprised five crates that con contained 366 manuscripts discovered at the end of the Second World War in the United States, United States occupation zone in Germany, which were part of the earliest Jewish cultural property in Europe that had survived the Nazis' destruction. By virtue of its membership in the umbrella organization Jewish Cultural Reconstruction, the Hebrew University received these documents for safekeeping at the end of the war, and the Americans now demanded that they be removed from Mount Scopus. Following UN intervention, a delegation of experts that included the director of the library, Kurt Wormann, the renowned scholar, Gershom Scholem, and the senior librarian, Shlomo Shunami, was allowed to visit the site for nine hours 
and to examine the condition of the manuscripts found in the five crates. However, these were exceptional events amid a situation of general disconnection. Over the past months, we have been unable to bring out even one book from Mount Scopus, Rothkurt Vorman, the director of the library, in a note appended to a memorandum that's reviewed the condition of the library in the autumn of 1949 and the temporary arrangements for the storage of books and for reading rooms provisionally located in the western section of the city and which in a different university memorandum termed a library in exile. The differences between the foreign ministry and the ivory tower were meanwhile widening. The scholar failed to grasp the significance of the place or to recognize the signs of the times. Toward the end of 1950, Professor Felix Bergman, head of the library of the medical school, submitted a request to the foreign minister, Moshe Charette, to salvage the scientific libraries kept on Mount Scopus, and in particular, the collection of scientific journals without which it would be impossible to undertake, I quote, serious scientific work, end of quotation. In return, so Bergman thought, one could offer the Jordanians the transfer of some 200,000 volumes belonging to private Arab libraries of great monetary and spiritual value, which had fallen into Israel's hand during the course of the hostilities of 1948. He was referring to the private libraries of Jerusalem Arab scholars and intellectuals salvages by the librarians of the National Library at risk to their lives and which were housed at the National Library. Walter Eitan rejected the proposal out of hand. From the outset, he replied, and I quote, we have objected to any step that may effectively impair the standing and importance of the institutions of the university and of Hadassah on Mount Scopus. Any lessening of the importance of the buildings and property located on Mount Scopus will lead to the weakening of our political demands to maintain in full our rights on Mount Scopus and to return the institutions located there to us." End of quotation. In his reply, Eitan traced Israel's political stand in the years to come, according to which the Israeli foreign ministry would voice increasing opposition to the university's initiatives, such as its independent attempt made through UNESCO to persuade the Jordanian government to allow the removal of the books. Loyal to the state's institution, the university displayed understanding toward Israel's political motives, although at times its leading figures could not conceal a certain impatience when they felt that its needs were being utterly disregarded. It appears that the university was gradually losing its influence within government ministries. The foreign ministry and its officials began to shake free of it and to redirect its officials to the defense ministry, as if the books and collections constituted a technical question rather than a matter of principle 
a practical rather than a strategic issue and a security rather than a political one. Although they survived the battles of 1948 virtually unscathed because they were removed from the shelves in good time and placed in the library storerooms, the 500,000 books were exposed to the ravages of time and neglect during the first half of the 1950s. With the books trapped on Mount Scopus and separated from their readers, bookworms began to destroy the collections. Particularly in dangerous was the Herbarium, assembled in 1920 by the self-taught scholar Alexander A., protégé of the well-known botanist Otto Warburg. It was naturally impossible to move the phytogeographical and phytosociological botanical garden that Egg initiated in the late 20s on the Mount Scopus with the support of Warburg. This, however, was not the case regarding the herbarium, which contained some 300,000 sheets of rare material, part of which Egg had collected on his trips to Turkey in 1931, but also items he had brought from Iraq and Syria, countries to which Israel now had no access, and some 200 types that were not exhibited in any other herbarium worldwide. This was, so the university believed, the most important collection of items from the Near East in the world. In a state of disuse, the experts maintained, it was threatened by destruction by insects. Loss of the herbarium, they wrote in a document dispatched to the UN, was equivalent to the loss of a manuscript which cannot be replaced. While the men of science focused on the danger of losing cultural property, those of the foreign ministry, as the official representatives of the State of Israel, sought to reduce and prevent any international involvement, even were it to be offered in the guise of assistance. The UNESCO representative's proposal to visit the collection was coolly received by Israel's foreign ministry. I made it very clear to him, wrote Israel's envoy in Paris, that Mount Scopus was not a tourist location and that the UNESCO emissary would have to be accompanied by an authorized representative of the State of Israel on his visit to the Mount Scopus. The sheets of egg herbarium were collected during the 30s in an open geographical sphere, and its findings were to serve the interests of progress across borders, such as furthering ways of confronting the locust plague in the Middle East. The 550,000 reference cards of the concordance of ancient Arab poetry trapped in the Mount Scopus enclave were likewise meant to transcend borders. Preparation of the concordance was initiated by Josef Horwitz, professor of ancient <coughs> Islam at the University of Frankfurt and founder of the Institute of Oriental Studies at the Hebrew University. By collecting and cataloging every word that appeared in early Arabic poetry from the pre-Islamic period up to the end of the Umayyad period, 
the concordance that Horvitz placed at the heart of scholarly enterprise of the Jerusalem University's Institute was, and I quote, to enable ancient art poetry to explain itself through itself, end of quotation. The entire staff of the Institute took part in preparing the concordance and Horvitz, the Institute Absentee's director, Auswärtiger Director, intended to use it to write a definitive history of ancient art poetry, a project cut short by his death in 1931. Faithful to German philological tradition, the Institute continued its concordance project until it was disconnected at one of its hundreds of thousands of reference cards in 1948. In a report submitted to the United Nations, Shlomo Dov Goitain, a student of Horvitz and the future renowned scholar of the Gniza, noted that while attending the International Orientalists Convention at Cambridge in autumn 1954, he had refrained from initiating a petition calling on the Jordanians to allow the material to be removed from Mount Scopus. He apparently somewhat naively assumed that, and I quote, it would be a great loss of reputation for the Hashemite government if he turned down such a request, end of quote. One may wonder if in the mid-1950s, at the height of the border disputes between Israel and Jordanian, the Jordanian royal family was concerned about Horvitz's reference cards and those of his colleagues and students, and how much this interested the Israeli regime. The scholars of the Hebrew University ignored, or perhaps were unaware, of the significance of each book, card, or herbarium sheet as a bargaining chip in the struggle over sovereignty. The rights of sovereignty that Israel performed regarding its territory on Manscopus during the 19 years of the enclave's existence, in the interest of which it included the village of Isawiya, the imperial cemetery, the buildings of the Hadassah Hospital, and those of the Hebrew University, together with their libraries and collections, were directly linked to the continual questioning of the legitimacy of its rule over Jerusalem in general and its control of Mount Scopus in particular. Jerusalem's international status as a corpus separatum ruled out international recognition of the Jewish city as a whole, while Mount Scopus in particular lacked other fundamental and vital components that characterize and validate territorial political sovereign existence such as control over the entrance to and exit from the area of the enclave, interdependent sovereignty, which of course necessitated passage through Jordanian territory, as well as de facto and the Euro control over the area itself, battalion sovereignty, which was placed in the hands of the UN. Even Israel's internal sovereignty, legally termed domestic sovereignty, was only partial since the residents of Isawiya certainly neither recognized nor accepted it. In light of Israel's policy throughout the enclave's existence, it is hardly surprising that one of the first decisions made by its government following its conquest of East Jerusalem 
1967 was to restore to Mount Scopus the Hebrew University, which had meanwhile been functioning on the Givat Ram campus in the west of the city. The return of the university, along with its teachers and students, was regarded as a golden opportunity to reinforce the link between Western Jerusalem and the northern neighborhoods and the university's institutions eagerly enlisted in this mission. The university took a role in the planning and its members were invited to take part in many of the decisions. Most of its staff apparently had no objections to the plans for return, which, are in, which were in a sense a national undertaking. While a few may have wished to concentrate on planning the university as such, rather than making way for sentiments or non-academic considerations, it appears that most of those involved showed little interest in the Arab environment. The few reservations articulated concerning the reactivation of the university on Mount Scopus were of technical and logistical nature rather than fundamental or political one. Any skeptics where there were could voice uh, opinions only in private meetings and not in public, in the corridors rather than in the meeting rooms. Was it the 19 years of severance and the accompanying sense of humiliation, or perhaps the difficulty in accessing the intellectual and cultural property and the frustration this generated? Was, the, was it the tremendous fatigue produced by living in a divided city under constant threat of violence that led to the general consensus regarding the project of return? Or was it perhaps the messianic fervor that gripped the university staff, staff as it did many Israelis in the wake of its success in the 1967 war? I cannot answer this question. A long descending voice stood out among the general uniform chorus. This was the voice of Professor Martin Plessner, scholar of Middle Ages Islam, who migrated to Palestine after losing his post at Frankfurt University in 1933, and who for many years was obliged to teach Arabic in the Reali High School in Haifa before gaining a university appointment. Lesner notes a report on a meeting of the University Senate opposed the plan to move back to Mount Scopus, and I quote, primarily because political objectives should not direct the university's steps and because one should not, in his view, create facts on the ground in a place whose future was still uncertain, end of quotation. Yet Plesner was known to be an eccentric and one wonders whether any of the participants, apart from the recorder of the minutes of meeting, listened to what he had to say. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ifa, for this extremely interesting lecture about um, books about herbarium, about the concordance, about buildings, and about Isawea. And this Isawea is still a very problem here. 
probably the books have all in the concordance have a more peaceful existence than it's a we are nowadays. But um, I think um, this raises very many questions about cultural property, borderlines, and beyond books. So I open the floor. Yes. Thank you very much, Monica. Uh, I didn't use this just a little before the period of cover, but I was reading about a, a you probably know, Viscount Samuel of Mount Scopus. I think he was given that title. If I remember rightly, he was the first High Commissioner of Palestine once an anti was established. And one of an excellent, wonderful work he wrote, Creative Man, which was a lovely book. You may, I don't know if you come across it, but um, I, I just looked before, could you, go, could you just say anything about Viscount Samuel and his career and influence on their developments? Viscount Samuel of Mount Scopus. You heard of him? No. The, the name? He was a high, he was Jewish. He was the High Commissioner of Palestine just after the mandate was created. He was a little. He was a, yes. Anything? You didn't, just a little before the page of cover, but could you say anything about his life and relevance to what? He was named by that Viscount Samuel of Mount Scopus, which you were covering. About Herbert Samuel? Yes. Viscount Samuel, yes. You've heard of him. Yes, yes, of course, but I, I'm not. I'm not sure about your question. Your question. You, well, just you, it's just before the period you covered, but he was named after by the Ottoman Scopus. I just wonder if the influence continued in the period you covered. Of Herbert Samuel was very. I mean, he was of course invited to the to the very famous ceremony in 1925, and he is part of the ceremony. But I cannot say something more about it. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe oh, later on. Sorry. Yeah, I, I can perhaps throw a little light on that because in 1967, uh, just after the war, I, I was asked to try and find out something about the ownership of a piece of land on Mount Scopus. And I, I went to Israel and I went to the land registry in Israel and I was able to find this piece of land which is on the slopes of Mount Scopus and it was actually bought in the early 20s by Lord Samuel. I mean, the, the registered proprietors, the owners of that land, were Lord Samuel, Norman Bentwich, Euda Magnus, and one other. I can't remember who the other one was. And having located it and found that it was actually owned by representatives of the Hebrew University, I said, well, I'd like to go and have a look and see exactly where this land is located. And the land registry said, no, you don't. It's been mined. It's a minefield. You can't go there now. So, so it, it was subsequently cleared and is now part of the ownership of, of Mount Scopus. But it was certainly in the ownership of the university from the 20s on. From the 20s on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's wonderful. I mean, how do, how do you explain this really? Um, this shift, you know, I mean, when we think at the, at the early meaning of why to have a university up there, and really, when you're up there on Mount Scopus, the panorama is splendid, and you see everything, and you have the feeling you control everything when you're up there. So physically, it's a mark of power, and it's quite easy to understand why the, the university was supposed to be up there, to turn around history. Um, but this, this idea to turn around history was linked, let's say, to learning, maybe to some kind of um, cultural Zionism, but 
probably be more close to Wolisanism as they thought at the beginning. But this total um, change of policies um, in the 1950s, when suddenly it was more important to get the books rotten than to save the books, just to make a point that this place belongs to the State of Israel too. I mean, it's a really radical um, um, reorientation shift. So, so maybe, th thank you, Daniel, and maybe, maybe the point uh, again on, on two topics. I mm -hmm, think these mm -hmm. are two topics. So the the first, the first would be the question of of uh, cultural spiritual Zionism mm -hmm. and uh, the meaning of cultural Zionism in the uh, so, so to say the, the moment. It's not. A, mm -hmm. It's about sovereignty. I mean, mm -hmm. after forty eight, and actually, I would like to hear maybe Michael. Michael, you would like to, to say, to add something about it, Professor Michael Bradley. Uh, but actually to say that uh, if, if spiritual cultural Zionism was not about uh, mm -hmm. sovereignty or was mm -hmm. in a way uh, uh, about uh, <coughs> other ideas and other topics, uh, nevertheless, by uh, establishing and initiating institutions, uh, of course, uh, it uh, has a, a, a huge role in the preparation to sovereignty. So, uh, all of a sudden, the Hebrew mm -hmm. University, uh, which ex existed from 1924, 1925, 20, after 48, and I think it took the university and the university leaders a while to understand mm -hmm. the new role. Uh, definitely, I'm sure about it, uh, uh, about especially about Werner Senato, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the the main uh, administrator, uh, who had uh, to to change his mm -hmm. ideas, being in the 20s as sympathizer of Brit Shalom of mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. uh, binational solution. Uh, and being a sympathizer like Magnus mm -hmm. of the binational uh, bi solution mm -hmm. till the 1948, and all of a sudden to, to understand that it's not about the binational solution anymore, it's about sovereignty and mm -hmm. uh, uh, has to change his minds and his uh, tactic. And it took, mm -hmm. him a, it took him a while, you can see that it took him mm -hmm. a while, not to speak about Magnus, but Magnus died in 1948. Mm -hmm. So this is maybe one shift from the mm -hmm. pre-national institution uh, uh, mm -hmm. to, to, mm -hmm. to statehood. Uh, <coughs> the other aspect, and they belong of course together, uh, is, is the question of the meaning of culture and cultural mm -hmm. property. And in this sense, I, I, I would say that it is my interpretation, mm -hmm. and I guess that other people working in the field see it very differently. Mm -hmm. My interpretation, and this was my argument, is to say uh, they follow uh, different uh, interests. Yeah. So it's not that the state uh, was absolutely uh, hostile or indifferent mm -hmm. to culture. That would be a, a vulgar argument. Mm -hmm. That's not mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. argument. Uh, and it's clear that uh, Ben-Gurion, for example, uh, prefer uh, to, to accept the situation of the enclave and not to go on with the fighting mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he was afraid that the library uh, might, might be destroyed mm -hmm. by, by going on fighting with the 500,000 mm -hmm. books. Uh, still, after 48, 
the meaning of this cultural property, mm -hmm. or th this was less important uh, than the aspect of sovereignty. And uh, accepting uh, that this property will be taken out of Mount Scopum meant to, sing to signal that uh, there is no, uh, so to say, no interest anymore. So for that reason, till the late 50s, uh, the books were kept there, the collections were kept there, and then at the end of the uh, 50s there was a, a new arrangement, and slowly, and uh, slowly, slowly, uh, the things uh, were taken down to the western part mm -hmm. of the cities, uh, for all kinds of reasons, because mm -hmm. at the end of the 50s it didn't matter uh, mm -hmm. anymore. But uh, uh, at the end of the 40s and uh, at the beginning of the 50s, uh, it was still uh, very important not to let things being taken out mm -hmm. uh, with few exceptions. Mm -hmm. and, and I mentioned few exceptions, but they, they were very rare, the exceptions. But still, I think it's extremely surprising. I mean, I do understand that they disagree about Isawea. I mean, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Isawea. Isawea is a little uh, village just below um, the university and up until today, very important when we talk about Intifada. And um, very difficult case is that we are and wouldn't recommend to live there. But books, you know, how do you really manage to link books to sovereignty? You know, if you take up books, we still have these great buildings there. You know, we have the arena there on Mount Scopus. Why are books more important than architecture when you speak about sovereignty and to claim this is ours? So, 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 so maybe mm -hmm. talking about surprises. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, for Israeli uh, mm -hmm. audience, uh, the, the, the biggest surprise, first of all, is uh, to recognize what, what was part of the Israeli part of the Mount Scopus enclaves. Mm -hmm. Because most of the Israelis, and even my colleagues in the Hebrew University, yes. believe that the enclave was Hadassah and Hebrew University. That's the way people... Uh, so mm -hmm. Two things mm -hmm. are forgotten. That Isawiyah was part of the Israeli part of the enclave, mm -hmm. and that the imperial... Uh, War uh, cemetery yes. was part of the Israeli uh, part of the enclave. So yeah. these both, as you like to call them institutions or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or sites, uh, are, are not recognized by most Israelis as part of the enclave. They believe that it was only Hadassah and the university because it has a kind of iconic meaning for the mm -hmm, Israelis. Mm -hmm. and, and you can imagine, of mm -hmm. course, university in an enclave has a kind of uh, yes. iconic uh, meaning. Now, Isawiya is mm -hmm. a surprise in itself mm -hmm. uh, because you, you just mentioned that Isawiya actually, uh, as I started uh, to, to work on my project, I, I guess no one knew the name Isawiya. Now you can hear the name mm -hmm. Isawiya in the news almost mm -hmm. every, every other week mm -hmm. uh, because many of the casualty and, and mm -hmm. the conflict is taking place uh, also uh, between uh, or, or near Isawiya, in Isawiya. Uh, but Isawiya is in itself a surprise. A surprise mm -hmm. in the sense that it was really very exceptional because mm -hmm. they were allowed to return. Mm -hmm. And uh, the initiative to allow the Palestinians to return mm -hmm. to, to the village uh, was uh, 
partly taken by the university. And it was Werner Senato who was very active by promoting this initiative as he was part mm -hmm. of Boric Shalom and I guess it, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, it belongs to his way of thinking. Uh, so on the one hand it is surprising and it's an, it is an exception that they were let, uh, that uh, they were allowed to come back, to mm -hmm. return. Now on the other hand, if you look at this area in the years between 48 mm -hmm. and 67, and, and I didn't work on it yet, mm -hmm. I mean I saw a little bit of the material, as I said, mm -hmm. it's work in progress, uh, you can see that Israel is practicing an Isawiya uh, uh, techniques uh, and policy which uh, it will practice later on after 67 in the West Bank and in the occupied territories because it's a very special situation in Isawiya. Uh, the, the Arabs of Isawiya are not similar to the Israeli Arabs, so to say, or the Arab of, uh, of, I mean, not, they are not citizens of the state. Uh, and because they are part of the enclave, and because of in the enclave, according to, uh, to the agreement, there are only 85 so-called policemen, they are all soldiers, uh, but called policemen in the agreement. So actually the thousand uh, uh, inhabitants of Isawiya live under the 85 Israeli soldiers. Mm -hmm. So in a way it's kind of a small, so to say, occupation. Mm -hmm. And part of the policy, I would say, I have to check it, I have mm -hmm. to read more about it, I have to see more documents, and, and I'm just now starting to look at the Israeli military mm -hmm. archive to look uh, what, 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 what can be found there. I looked first in the UN archives and the British archives. Uh, but I think that you can see there, uh, the starting of policy vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the Palestinians mm -hmm. who are not the Israeli. Palestinian. So this would be a kind of a second mm -hmm. surprise. Now you ask, how comes its books uh, are uh, turning into argument uh, in a struggle of sovereignty? Uh, the struggle of sovereignty, uh, or may maybe to, 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 to argue in another way, to say Israel can only consist about its rights in the Manscopus while saying these are our institutions. Mm -hmm. Now, institutions, uh, university, even not functioning, mm -hmm. is still university as long as the collections, the libraries, mm -hmm. and everything is there. Once you take it out of it, it's not an institution anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of real estate, and over real estate you can negotiate, mm -hmm. so now mm -hmm. why not to shift it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the moment the books are not there, <laughs> you can shift everything, or you mm -hmm. can... Uh, uh, so, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's understandable, mm -hmm. of course, uh, but uh, the scholars themselves uh, followed another logic, yeah. <laughs> of course, and wanted their collection. And, and by the way, because we are here in the German Historical mm -hmm. Institute, just to say that, uh, uh, to imagine the 500,000 books are in the enclave and uh, we moved mm -hmm. to the west part of the city only at the end of the 50s, so it took more than 10 years. Mm -hmm. and the university was left without a library. Yeah. And uh, the uh, biggest amount of books who, uh, uh, which, which were the starting point mm -hmm. for the new library were part of the earliest Jewish cultural property mm -hmm. uh, uh, which was brought 
uh, from Europe via Antwerpen mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to uh, Israel in 1948-50. So these 200,000 books, 40% uh, of the earliest Jewish cultural property uh, was, so to say, uh, substituted the, nation, mm -hmm. the Israeli National Library, which was in the enclave of, of Mount Scopus. Mm -hmm. This is also... Yes? Um, I have a question that has to... Oh, sorry. No, no, you go first, and then... Uh, that step divided into two parts, um, rather simple. One, the actual subject matter of the books. Um, had it maybe been religious manuscripts, Jewish religious manuscripts, would that have had a different impact in how people would have vouched for retrieving the books? And then to what extent was this conflict public? To what extent did the public actually uh, know about what was going on? And did they even have an influence? Okay, so thank you. Two very good questions. And I, I can hardly answer both of them. Because the first, the first question would be, I mean, the library was, I mean, had all kinds of literature, so holy and uh, uh, profane as well. Uh, and it would be speculative to say if it was only holy books, did it have a, a stronger meaning? I'm not sure about it. I'm not sure about it. I mean, not, not uh, in Israel of the 40s, 50s, which was, okay, uh, I don't want to contradict myself. It was a secular state still with a lot of political theology, but still a secular state. So I think the books were books that was important enough or not important enough. But uh, the quest, but it, I think it's a beautiful question. So I, I don't want to negate the question as such. I, I, I cannot answer it. I, I can only speculate. The other question, it was public. It was public, even though I didn't look at the newspaper yet, but it was public. It was nothing that was unpublic. Uh, but uh, just to say, and I have to check it also, that's to, 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 to ask, I mean, Mount Scopus is iconic. So it's a lot of a mess about it. Uh, and how was it built? What are the reasons for this iconic uh, meaning? And what was part of the public uh, debate? And uh, how far uh, the position of uh, academics and intellectuals was heard? Uh, it's a very complicated uh, question. And uh, one way to follow it would uh, to look at the status of the Hebrew University as such. And the university changed uh, uh, dramatically uh, from the pre-state situation to the state situation. While in the pre-state situation, it was at the beginning only a research institute uh, with no teaching at all. It was actually only for research. Uh, it, has, it had to take more and more national uh, undertaking and, and projects. So, uh, it would be very interesting to look at the status of the university at that time to see how uh, how it is uh, conceived by the general public. So thank you for both. Question. Yeah. 
Um, first of all, thanks for a uh, wonderful talk. And I just I have a couple of comments in order to sort of put it into context as far as why it's so important that the location and sort of the buildings that existed would be so important that it was of um, obviously great symbolic importance in the beginning in the beginnings of the Zionist movement and in the interwar years. But in a lot of ways, it was already very embattled, or the university saw itself as very embattled, partly because of the kinds of arguments that were going on between Einstein and Magnus, in that the university was just not progressing in the way that many people had hoped, and that it was not only not teaching, but it was a very kind of spotty research institute that a lot of people were very critical of. And one of the things that happened during the mandate was that hundreds of Jewish students actually came to Britain because there was sort of a glitch in the mandate, which meant that they could come here to study, and a lot of them didn't go back. So, I mean, most of them wound up staying in the country. So this is something almost no one has done, uh, done work on, but I think that, that there's, there's an awful lot more that's going on in terms of how they saw themselves and how they were going to promote themselves because a lot of things were not working and although they certainly got a lot of the refugee scientists and other academics, they did not get the kind of windfall that they had hoped with people choosing to go either here if they had the chance or the United States or elsewhere. And it wasn't just Einstein who thought they weren't doing the right thing with how they were organizing themselves. I mean, so a lot of these, these things you know, boiled over to later. But I think this, this is part of the reason why the location and the buildings and so the historic importance of it was what was focused on. So it was, uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great story and really important. So, so, first of all, Michael, thank you. And, and maybe it gives me the opportunity to add something by saying that uh, in, I mean, Einstein, Magnus, Weizmann, disputes uh, are also in the field of, of, of hard sciences and so on. Mm -hmm. But looking in the field of the humanities, maybe it's the right moment to uh, mention that the uh, strongest tradition in the Hebrew University uh, in the pre-state uh, time was the German uh, tradition. It was actually almost, uh, one could say, a German institution. Mm -hmm. 50% uh, of the professors uh, were German Jews or studied uh, uh, in uh, Germany uh, and kept to the philological German tradition. Now, you mentioned that there was a lot of critiques, and maybe I would like to hear uh, about critiques. That's one very strong critique was on the uh, Institute of Oriental Studies and the Concordance. And this happened in the Hartog Committee, uh, which evaluated the university in 1934. And while they were evaluating the universities and the institution, they were very critical to the concordance idea. They thought that it's a, actually a, a wrong uh, direction. And uh, they were very ironic about it. They were very ironic about the belief of the Orientalists, Jewish Orientalists, I would say German Jewish Orientalists, that with the concordance they will be able to bridge to the Palestinian side. There was a lot of talk about bridging, like the concordance will bridge to the 
Arabs. And the Hartog committee was very, very ironic about the uh, uh, so to say possibility to bridge uh, from this ivory tower. So among other things, there were also the problems of the ivory tower. And the ivory tower it was, in a way, a, a double problem. Mm -hmm. One was vis-a-vis -vis the Yeshuv, while people like mm -hmm. Bell, Katz, and Nelson, and Anders state that the university actually uh, doesn't, uh, uh, so, so to say, the, the university uh, is not part of the development of the country because it's such an exclusive institution not taking part in the most important things, not offering education for lower and whatsoever. So this was one aspect of the ivory tower. Uh, and of course, part of it was uh, the question of pol political stance because the university was, uh, uh, so to say, understood and, and, and criticized for being very left-wing oriented. And the other, problem of ivory tower was maybe vis-a-vis -vis the Arab side, like thinking a kind of elite idea that it will bridge to the Arab side. Now, actually, I started my project and I was looking to the question of bridging. I was asking myself if the university in the mid of Jerusalem, in the north of Jerusalem, surrounded by Arab neighborhood and population, actually succeeded in bridging. But I couldn't find very much of it. There was no much connections uh, actually in the 30s and 40s. It was quite isolated <coughs> for all kinds of reasons. I mean, both sides uh, had their own reasons. But a person like Sakakini, for example, very known and an Arab intellectual, uh, uh, living in Talbia and having a wonderful uh, one, uh, diary, uh, mentioned events in the Hebrew University, but it's clear that. He's not part of it, and, and he's not participating. So, <coughs> no much contacts in the 30s and 40s. There was another question. Yes, <coughs> um, I want to ask about the role of the university in planning the new campus after 67. Uh, <coughs> for those of you who don't know, the, the, the new campus was built as a kind of fortress bunker. Uh, atrocity, and that's a bit of a cliche, but that's, that's what it is. Um, how much weight did, uh, how much this was a product of the university vision or a kind of, or, or more nationalist? And specifically, were the planners and the university aware and careful about the questions of the enclave? Because I know that, I know that the university likes to make a point. Yeah. likes to make the point, occasionally, that they are on Israeli territory. They are not an occupied territory uh, in East Jerusalem. They are different. Uh, and that means that maybe that required some kind of taking this into account while you're planning the university not to go on to expropriated land or, or, or into the occupied So we, is this by mistake or is this by, by plan? So, so many, many, actually raised many uh, different questions, and I will ch choose part of them. Maybe by starting with an I, I thought that it's another anecdote. Maybe it's not so funny, uh, but uh, half a year ago, 
an international center on the Hebrew University had a, a conference and they decided to uh, put the guest in the Hyatt mm-hmm. Hotel that's very nearby, I mean something like 400 meter, 500 meter. And two days before the conference started, few guests said that they are not uh, they are not going to participate if part of the sessions are going to take place in the hotel, because the hotel is uh, so to say not part of Israel, and they won't do it. And the uh, institution and the university was shocked. Never had I mean, but okay, people are very different, and it's also very individual uh, the way people uh, the perception of the environment, but they were shocked that 500 meter out of the university, it's not anymore uh, Israel in the eyes of the people from abroad, and they had to uh, to move in the last second uh, back to the university, to the Meyerstorf building, if you know, if you know the... Uh, so may, maybe a kind of an anecdote in, in the question of uh, where is the border, or what is inside and what is outside. Now, it's a very serious topic, of course. It's not an, uh, in itself not funny uh, at all. And you you ask two questions, and I think uh, the, the one is easier, the other is complicated. The one you asked about the uh, architecture and the planning and uh, the question of so. These are uh, uh, many different uh, questions because the architecture of the campus developed slowly, and the buildings that you mentioned were actually are all from the 70s. It didn't happen uh, directly after 67. It took a while, and there is a lot of writing, especially by Diana Dolev, people from architecture, about the question of why this architecture was 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 choose why why this and why uh, uh, I mean it, in, uh, it looks very different uh, from the old buildings in the campus. The old buildings in the campus are, are very very different in their style. The other question is the question of planning, and maybe to say is it's uh, the what, what surprised me was that the planning to return started actually. Uh, uh, Actually, in the middle of the war, I mean, it was altogether six days, but uh, the uh, first declaration about return to Mount Scopus was made in the 9th of June 1967, means in the fourth, in the third or fourth day of the war, uh, which is uh, uh, very uh, surprising. Uh, and I don't know how to interpret it. I think it needs a little bit of more work to know how to interpret it. A, a colleague of mine interpreted in the sense of, a, a, in the sense of continuity, to say it was clear the entire years that the moment it will be possible, there will be a return. A, that's not my way to think. A, in a way, it was clear. Nothing is clear. I mean, uh, this, uh, kind of a, a decision is not clear. It's a decision, uh, and I would interpret it, but I didn't do enough work yet to be able to to, to say it uh, with uh, absolute assurance uh, that a mixture between uh, self-identity of the institution, its own identity on the one hand, and strategic. 
considerations mixed in the 19 years. So slowly, slowly, something, something was mixed. And if in the beginning, uh, by people like uh, Senator and other, it was clear that the university has its own uh, ideas and its own policy, its own vision, its own. Uh, so after 19 years, when the state took care of the site and made the main decisions, uh, the university was in a way integrated in state decision and uh, in a way also uh, saw it as its own, as its own role to, uh, uh, to, to help and assist the state strategically. So something changed in the university. And uh, uh, I think that when I read the reports, the minutes of the Senate, the, the uh, faculty of the humanities, I looked at the faculty of the humanities and the Senate, how people discuss about it. So there were, so, there were may, maybe three or four voices that were different from the rest. So everyone was, uh, uh, so to say, uh, uh, satisfied with the decision to return. And the people who were a bit skeptical, they were not so many. Plasno was maybe the, the, the most clear voice, but also other people like Uriel Head, Ottmanis, mm -hmm. uh, who said that not to return everything, only to return institutions which has to do uh, with the surroundings like Jewish and Oriental institution, which will be, again, the idea of a bridge, only to bring institution uh, which will be able to bridge with the surrounding. But this was, uh, I mean, it was only Uriel Head who had this kind uh, of ideas. Now, the question of appropriation is also a very uh, complicated one, because it's clear that the university in its uh, form today is uh, not in the uh, boundaries uh, of uh, 1948. And the dormitories which were built already in the 70s was part of already an appropriate plan. So it's uh, extremely complicated. I mean, to make a, a semi-legal, a semi-legal argument by saying we are in a, a place that's what brought, I mean, it's the old argument, legally, <coughs> but this would be another kind of discussion about legitimacy and about. I, I, I do have two questions. One has to do with the architectural question and how would you see the Robin building? The Robin building. Oh, <laughs> you shouldn't ask. <laughs> and um, um, which is an extremely fascinating building. On one hand, very transparent, but it overlooks. It's so weird, the West Bank, and but it's a different kind of architecture. So that's my first question: How does this fit in the history of the university ideologically? And the other thing is coming back to bridge building bridges. Um, you mentioned this extremely interesting discussion or suggestion in the 1950s. Um, we give you the 200,000 books we have. I don't quite sure if you can say confiscated from the former Palestinian elite living in Jerusalem, and then you give us back our books on Mount Scopus. Mm -hmm. Where are these 200 books, 200,000 books today? 
and so maybe to start with the first question yeah. which is hard to to answer, so I will start by answering in German. Wie man es macht, macht man es falsch. Just to say that uh, the question, what would be uh, the, what would be the right buildings, mm -hmm. so to say? What what would be the right sign for the surrounding? Mm -hmm. What would be a building in the Mount Scopus campus that the Palestinian uh, neighbors uh, would be uh, happy to see vis-a-vis uh, -vis their windows. I mean, it's, it's, there won't be, uh, of course, uh, mm -hmm. any kind of building which would be derived from their perspective. Mm -hmm. But this is not the question, maybe. The other question is, uh, uh, and, and, and this is very hard to answer. I, I, I dare to answer it. The other question is the question of uh, individuals strategies mm -hmm. like uh, if you are uh, so to say if you are affiliated in an institution mm -hmm. and the institution is located the place it is located like in the Mount Scopus mm -hmm. and we, you you work vis-a-vis -vis a Palestinian village and you work also vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the fence I don't mm -hmm. know that's the way mm -hmm. it is. Uh, and uh, so, in a way, you are expected uh, to relate yourself to it. Mm -hmm. Now, starting by saying that, uh, why? Starting by saying, why should I relate to it more than another colleague in the Tel Aviv University? Only because it's vis-a-vis -vis my window now. Still, I would say, uh, it's a general question. Mm -hmm. It's not more the question of Mount Scopus than any other place. But because it's vis-a-vis -vis mine, mm -hmm. or because I can see it every day or every working day, of course, I uh, have more reasons or mm -hmm. opportunities to think about it. So in a way, for myself, I, say, I, I might say that I uh, think about it, but I'm not sure that uh, other colleagues think about it every day because they don't see it. And the fact that they don't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the question if a special building uh, located in the mid of the campus, in the old buildings, or located in one of the new buildings, mm -hmm. which are uh, in a way a little bit, um, how to say it? Eichstichend. What's the English word of it? Eichstichend. Something that you cannot overlook. Catches Catch your... Eye catching. Eye catching? What's the name? Eye catching? Conspicuous. Conspicuous. Uh, it's again another question. Hard to say something uh, about it. So this, uh, so to say, about your question uh, about the campus and how mm -hmm. it feels like and how it, uh, how it is to be there. The other question was about the Palestinians' book. Mm -hmm. So the two hundred thousand Palestinian books 
uh, I don't know if the number, if, if this mm -hmm. is the right number, are part of the Israeli National Library still. Mm -hmm. uh, they still have the signature, or used to have the signature uh, of uh, absentee property, mm -hmm. AP. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is much writing about them by a person named Gish Amit. Even though I think that it's admirable that he wrote about it, and I disagree with the way he wrote about it, but uh, anyway, there is a much of his writings, and, and for every, everyone who wants to read more about it, uh, Gishamit uh, actually was the first person uh, to to make it very known. Uh, I would say that nowadays this is a politically not a question. The question sh maybe could have been uh, why there was no gesture of return in 1993, 1994, 1995, at that time, mm -hmm. why there are no suggestions of returning it, or anyway, returning the, the one with ex libris, I mean, with, with, uh, uh, which has real possession. So the Sakakini Library is in the mm -hmm. Israeli National Library, mm -hmm. just to say. Okay. Are there any more questions? If not, okay, maybe one last question, Tabea. Yes, so I'm not aware, unfortunately, when the institution changed from being research only to teaching as well. So that might render my question obsolete. But um, I'd be interested in the, the role or the voice of the student community in negotiating the questions of retrieval of books or returning, and also how that how that voice or that positioning is evolving um, over time. I would um, yeah, do that. On I, I might uh, very short answer. Just by saying that many students after 48 were uh, war veterans from the 48 war. And uh, I don't know if it was translated into English, but if it was, I would like to recommend a prose work by Yehuda Amichai. Not, not from here, not from now. It's definitely translated into German. Mm -hmm. It's a very, uh, where Yehuda Amichai, very uh, non-Israeli novelist, uh, from. Uh, originally from Wurzburg, uh, take a figure uh, and half of it, it's not clear if it's two protagonists or, or, or the same protagonist. One of the protagonists is a soldier, is an uh, archaeologist and soldier uh, in, in the Mount Scopus and Clay. And I think that Amichai gave a little bit of the uh, atmosphere of the time and, uh, and and it's a great prose book, by the way. So maybe prose did better than a, a research in this sense. So. OK. Then I'd like to come to a close for the part of this evening. My thanks go out to Eva for <laughs>